Hi everyone, I am Cynthia and I would like to welcome you to the Brave Zone. This is our webinar about brave leadership, how to lead change, how to guide your team to adapt to change. And as we know, change is the only constant in this world, but it doesn't make it easy. I know that firsthand. In the last 22 years that I've been building and leading businesses, um, I've always been put in charge of divisions and business units where we needed to change something to improve the performance of the business. And we were sometimes doing it in a relatively stable economy, but sometimes there were uh, political crises, economic crises, uh, pan-Asia uh, epidemics, and it makes it even all that more challenging. So I'm here to impart practical knowledge for you and practical strategies for you to understand where change comes from, why that fear of change um, can overcome a lot of people and how to resolve it. And we'll be combining, of course, business philosophy, but also psychology, because I think behind every business is a human being. And we need to understand that in order for us to lead any business, we also need to understand the human factor of it. It's not just about strategies. So uh, a wise man named Jim Rohn, business mentor and philosopher, he, he one of his favorite my favorite quotes from him is never wish your life were easier, wish that you were better. And uh, I really thank you for your commitment to personal growth and for being here because you are showing up that you do value uh, the importance of being better so that your life in business and the life can be easier. A little bit about myself. I come from a pretty diverse background, but a pretty practical one. Um, graduated out of UCLA uh, with a psychology degree, but I went straight to work. I went uh, straight to um, working in a large business, uh, which was at that time a large conglomerate corporation in Indonesia. Uh, started as HR, then I moved to different types of sectors, going to sales and marketing, where I really developed my career in business development and business building. 22 years, uh, we have um, achieved a lot of great changes and improvement in the businesses that I've led simply because um, of a combination of how to understand people, but also how to understand how business works. So my background is a mix between practical business knowledge and practical psychology. And it, it, it helped me a lot in terms of, you know, motivating the team to achieve things together, getting the team to, to change their habits, but also understanding finance, marketing, operations, um, the, that part of the business so that we can advance our growth. So when I guide businesses to achieve more, um, I don't like to see it only on one angle. I think a lot of people with only one, you know, only a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but I like to see how the holistic view of business, including the people in it, so you'll see that when I guide you to improve your leadership and your business, it is will be a combination between psychology and business uh, strategies. It will not be just asking you questions and drawing things out of it like a traditional coach would do. It is also giving you real advice because I know how to play your game and we've probably played the same game. So it is probably faster for us to get things done if you are open to it by just giving you what I see and by giving you certain advice when it is applicable. 
So I, I own currently two businesses in Indonesia and I'm starting a third one in the UK. My business is in Indonesia. We bought a franchise called Action Coach, wonderful, wonderful system for business coaching. And we are still delivering business and leadership coaching to multinational organizations as well as SMEs. The other business is that we are a co-master licensee of Engage and Grow Indonesia. We um, sell licenses for people who want to go into team engagement coaching and want a structured proven system. So everything I do in Indonesia is now being run by my partners and my team. Uh, fortunately, it's given me the freedom to uh, seek out new adventures in the UK and um, step back as a passive investor in the business, which is fantastic. And they're doing a fantastic job. And I also love, I also have a passion for nonprofit organizations, especially those that empower financial freedom in people. Um, so we have coached for the last 10 years, the Entrepreneurship School for Underprivileged Teens in Jakarta. And that has created a lot of impact for, for uh, underprivileged teenagers who have now grown up to be university graduates. They've got jobs, they've got businesses, and it's been quite a rewarding experience for us. Things that light me up, of course, is being with my loved one. Uh, Ron is my life partner in, in the UK, having a fantastic time together. What other things that light me up is also imparting knowledge, facilitating workshops, uh, educational events, also guiding people one-on-one. -on -one. I really love speaking to business people and um, talking about how to break through personally, but also how to break through through business strategies. Another thing that lights me up is living without fear. I've had uh, certain situations in my life that unfortunately embedded some fears, like I had an, uh, a snorkeling accident that led me to be afraid of the deep blue sea. But then I took diving lessons and the fear was gone because diving is now one of the favorite things I love to do. And then when I started diving, I realized that I was afraid of sharks. So that was another fear that I wanted to overcome. So I started, um, I, I took a shark feeding dive in the Bahamas, uh, totally cageless. We were surrounded by over 40 sharks and that made me completely fascinated with sharks instead of being afraid of them. So I do believe that life with fear is quite limiting and life without fear is quite freeing. And one of the biggest fears, of course, is uh, for people is also change, you know, how the, the, the fear of doing something with without certainty, the fear of not knowing what's going to happen in the future. And through this webinar, hopefully we'll, we'll talk more about that. So again, certainty means safety. Certainty means safety and certainty is a basic human need. So it's no wonder that when we talk about change, which is basically uncertainty, it challenges that human need uh, and it often creates fear. This is, this is where it's all come from. And many business problems arise from the fear of change. Um, for instance, the problem of declining profits. What are some fears that you can think of that might um, cause that? Certain examples from the clients I've coached or the businesses that I've led. Declining profits um, can be caused by the fear of um, the fear of understanding your numbers in the business. You know, people say, I hate numbers. I hate looking at reports. Or you're actually afraid to look at your reports, afraid to see what's really happening, um, afraid to admit your weaknesses. We see that in Nokia, for instance, when they were afraid to to 
admit that their Symbian system was operating system was no longer relevant to the needs of the market. They needed to move on. They needed to hire more software engineer, not hardware designers. Um, that caused their declining profits. That caused the loss of market share. The, and and you know, so those two points go hand in hand. The loss of good talent. We see a lot of business problems arise from the fear of moving on to a new type of leadership. The old founder, the old management says, this is the way it's been done before. The fear of not knowing what to do. You know, instead of getting out there and educating yourself, you're holding on to your ego and you're saying, that's not how I used to. You know, I run this company for 20 years already and I've done it this way and look at where we are now. Don't tell me the next 20 years is going to be different. Good talent, you know, is not really inspired by that mentality. And so they go off and work for more open minded leaders and you're losing them. So when you're losing good talent, you're stuck with mediocre talent and you've got to keep doing everything for them instead of being able to trust and let go and let them run the business. And, you know, many business owners close their business because they're simply so tired of running around managing mediocre talent. But my question is, what is the fear that's causing you? What is the change that you need to do within yourself in order to attract good talent? You know, and, and what's stopping you from doing that? The fear of uh, career advancement, um, the fear of not being good enough, this whole imposter syndrome um, is causing a lot of loss in career opportunities. And it's not because you're not good enough. It's because you think you're not good enough. It's because you've got a lot of negative self-talk. A lot of people who don't have the confidence actually have a lot of negative self-talk and um, they, they, uh, they find themselves um, they find themselves stuck uh, because they've made themselves stuck. And when you talk to me, I can, I can see, I can hear it. I can hear yourself talk uh, where you're criticizing yourself. And, and that's actually coming from a fear that perhaps this change, this new responsibility is not something you can handle. So there's a lot of uh, limiting beliefs that we can destroy in the process. So insert your challenge here. You know, I'm sure this is not a comprehensive list. I'm sure you've got your own business problems and challenges that arise from the fear of change. So I, I invite you to think about that or maybe jot them down in your notes and to, uh, to, to reflect upon later. So my objective today is to sharpen your leadership by helping you understand the fear of change. Where is it coming from? How to overcome it? In in essence, many people in business and in life, I see that they are living in the fear zone. They are guided by fear. Their decisions are made by fear. Today, we're also going to talk about how do you know if you are, your business or your life is being run by fear? You know, let's be able to detect that from now on. And I would like to, to jump from the fear zone to this bigger pond called the brave zone where excitement begins, where growth begins. And you know that there's a brave zone that you want to be in right now. You know that, you feel that. Or if you don't know what it is, you're looking for that. And that's why you're here. So again, let's, let's explore that together. So my promise to you is that I will be an educator, not a motivator. I'm not here just to rah-rah you to death. I'm here to actually give you specific knowledge and to advance you to the next level. I will be your coach and I will ask you some tough questions or some reflecting questions, reflective questions. I invite you to take a, a journal or some piece of paper and pen and make sure 
throughout this uh, webinar or if you're watching the recording, just that you're you're jotting the questions down and you are also um, making time later to answer them. You will get strategies that you will use uh, immediately. That's what I like to do. I love, I love giving you practical stuff. And I will show you how to take the next steps if you would like to further your um, education or your personal development. So this is what we're going to cover today. We're going to understand fear. What, what are the ones that help you? What are the ones that stop you? Is fear driving your decisions? We're going to be able to detect that within ourselves. We're going to be able to um, kind of be more self-aware about that by understanding our patterns. The brave transformation process. I'm going to talk about how to switch from the fear zone to the brave zone. There's a three-step process. How to guide your people through that change and what to look for. And um, the five ways to reduce the resistance to change. We're going to also talk about many things that uh, become patterns that perhaps you can detect in your daily life. So let's talk a little bit about fear. Where is it coming from? Well, as you know, we've got three major parts in the brain. One of them is called the neocortex, which is the most developed part of the brain. But the reptilian brain and the limbic brain are relatively simple. And um, when we look at the limbic brain, the emotion, the feeling brain, this is where fear lives. This is where fear originates. Now, fear has a function. The function of fear is to keep us safe. So it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's not a terrible thing to have fear. I mean, we detect things in our environment that helps us um, boost up our defense mechanism. For instance, in the caveman age, they lived among wild animals. And if you see a hungry lion standing in front of you, you feel that fear. And that encourages you to take some kind of action, either run or fight, you know, fight or flight. And let's say if you survive that one, you probably in your little cave, you would uh, prepare for the next lion fight. You would sharpen your knives or blades, or you would bring fire, or you would just not go there, not go to that part of the forest, you know, um, things like that. So fear's purpose is to keep us safe. It equips us with defense strategies, or it, uh, equip, and one of them is to avoid, is an avoidance strategy. Either you're going to fight or flight. So it's not a bad thing. However, there are some times when fear is no longer helpful because it keeps us from moving. I mean, if you live in fear, you'll see that your life is pretty much the way it is. It's just stagnant. Now, for some people, that's not a problem. I'm not here to say everybody needs to be ambitious. I'm here to give you the life that you want. And for some of you, if you are happy with that, you know, safe life, I'm not going to say that's wrong or right, but most of you like that are probably not going to be on this webinar. Many of you in this webinar will probably be the ones that says, you know what, I do want to go to the next level and I don't know how. And I feel that I don't know how to understand my fear. So that's why we're talking about it. So I also want to emphasize that being fearless is not being brave. Not having fear, getting rid of fear entirely is not really the strategy that I'm suggesting. Fear needs to be understood. Fear needs to be used properly. A business example, we've probably heard, especially if you're in the UK, a gentleman by the name of Neil Woodford. The Woodford Equity Fund was created perhaps about five years ago. It attracted about 10 billion pounds of investment 
The reason for that is because Neil Woodford had a 25-year track record of market-beating returns. He was a fund manager at a company, and the funds that he managed was was were performing brilliantly. So when he set up his own fund about five years ago, the market just threw money at him because he was that good. But I don't know if he had any fear, but obviously he didn't really listen to them. He decided... You know, he was just going to invest in smaller sized businesses that took a little bit more time to grow. The stocks were relatively illiquid. They were quite hard to liquidate last minute. They were not uh, public listed companies, many of them. And the strategy that he used was based on the conviction that the Brexit process would go as planned. And so, as we know, especially if you live in the UK, it's not going as planned and it has caused delays after delays, which has impacted negatively on the UK stock market. So what's happened to the portfolio that he invested in, it hasn't grown. And because it's relatively not liquid, illiquid, so what happens is that he cannot easily withdraw and return the investor's money as as they wish. But on the same time, just to attract investors, perhaps, he promised them daily liquidity. You can take out your money anytime. So when the market panicked, looking at the performance of the stock market, they started drawing out the funds. From 10 billion pounds, he was, uh, at the time of when the fund was suspended, it was at 3.7. So he had to return 6.7 billion. Don't know from where, but obviously things got a little bit, you know, crazy. Now, his strategy was quite fearless. You know, you don't know what's going to happen with Brexit, but he said, no, I've got, you know, probably he's got lots of experience or so he thinks. And um, I think that Woodford Equity Fund is a great example of fearlessness. Is And that's not what we mean by bravery. That's not what we mean by the brave zone. You know, being fearless is not necessarily being brave. He, maybe he had fear, but I'm not sure he used it properly. Um, that's why a lot of financial advisors would advise you on a balanced portfolio and looking at your age, looking at different uh, possibilities in the market. It's So it's not, again, this is not uh, a crazy webinar that says, you know, go, 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 let's be fearless. It's about knowing how to use it properly. So what is the difference between the fear that help you and the fears that stop you? The fears that help you are based on undeniable facts. It is like the lion. If you've got a hungry lion looking at you, for the most, you know, facts would say that they will start to attack you because hungry wild animals need meat. And if you are a source of meat, you are a target. So that is an undeniable fact. I mean, once or twice, you might have a hungry lion that's like, oh, human, I'm not really in the mood for human meat right now. So they walk away, maybe. But for the most part, it is an undeniable fact that wild animals will attack other sources of meat, including humans. So if your fears are based on an undeniable fact, like if you jump off a cliff, the force of gravity will bring you down. That is an undeniable fact. You don't float, okay, uh, unless you've got some equipment on. So having a fear of falling and deciding not to jump off a cliff unless you're really intending to die is based on an undeniable fact. That is a fear that helps you. That is a fear that keeps us alive. Listening to them will avoid you, will, will prepare you to avoid some dangerous action. Um, or it will 
maybe uh, if you really wanted to jump off a cliff safely, you'll start uh, innovating certain types of gadgets that can help you. So it prepares you, you know, listening to them prepares you. The fear that stop you are based on what I call false expectations appearing real. It's not what I call it. It's a, it's a generalized acronym for fear that you can, you can find in many, many sources. So it is an assumption. For instance, a client of mine that I said did not increase his price for seven years. The assumption was, if I increase my price, my clients will leave me. He had 70 B2B clients. He had been in business for 15 years. And his clients were quite loyal to them because he was just a nice guy. And he was a great supplier. He always delivered his, uh, his promises. Great guy. But at the same time, this whole false expectation that just because he increases price 10%, they're going to leave, has kept him from growing the business. Now, he was paying, I mean, of course, his rent increased, his, his staff salaries increased, his business costs increased, his raw materials increased. But, you know... That was it was only logical that the prices should increase. But because of his fear, he didn't think logically anymore. He thought illogically. And that's what stopped him from having a, a great business. So we've got to start understanding what is an expectation or an assumption and what is a fact. And how we do that is we question. So the way I did it was like, well, has there ever been a company that increase their price and didn't lose the customers? Of course, the answer is yes. It's called his suppliers. His suppliers did that. It's like, well, your suppliers increase your, their, their prices. Why don't you go away? Why don't you find other things? And he explained to me, oh, it's loyalty, or I like the guy I'm dealing with, good reputation, blah, 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 blah. So he knows firsthand that there are companies that increase prices. There are reasons why customers stay. And so we learn to question them. And then so the next question is usually, well, if you were to increase prices without losing customers, how would you do it? How, what are some of the ways, based on what you know about business, what are some of the ways that we can do that without losing or without actualizing that little fear of yours? And we've thought about different ways, phasing it out, different customers, different increases, uh, talking to them personally about it and uh, getting a personal buy-in, you know, things like that. And, and, that year, as I said before, he increased his price three times, not losing a single customer. In fact, some of his customers just said, oh, finally, after seven years, you know, they were laughing at him. But, you know, they were such good friends. That's why they could laugh about these things. But that's, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an assumption. It's not like that gravity thing. It's not like that lion thing. It's really just an assumption. So you can question them and learn from them. So, again, sharpening your self-awareness. This is where... Um, you need to uh, participate in this webinar by, by taking these stories and examples and saying, hmm, what part of my life am I like that? Am I, do I have some assumptions in my business and in my life that's causing me to, to, to limit myself? And the next part of this is, is fear driving your decisions? You know, what are some of the indications that we can see in our daily patterns that may point us to the realization that, oh my God, I'm being driven by fear. So let's take a look at these things. And again, as we're going through this, I want you to think about, is that me? Am I, am I behaving that way? Are you playing on defense? This is my first question to you about this uh, category. If, you, if fear is driving your business and your decisions, it's usually, you're, you're usually the type that, that 
that makes defensive strategies. For instance, Kodak was driven by the fear of losing their film business. Uh, digital era was coming. They invented the first digital camera, but they were really limiting themselves because they were afraid to lose their big film uh, business. So the, the question they, the strategic question they asked that led them to delay the launch of the first digital camera was how can we not lose the film business? It was a not lose question instead of how can we win the digital market? If they said, how can we win the digital market? They would have said, well, gosh, we are the first to invent this stuff. Let's just launch it out tomorrow. But instead they said, how can we not lose? So they said, okay, keep this new technology on the side. Let's keep milking the film industry for a little bit more. But before they know it, Sony and, um, and Canon had launched the digital camera. Now, they, uh, Sony and Canon were not playing on defense. They were playing offense. They were saying, what type of business are we in? And came out with the strategic answer that we are actually in the storytelling business. We're no longer in the camera business. We're not in the hardware business. We're in the storytelling. And if digital digitalization helps people tell stories better, let's go for it. So they launched the digital camera campaign and they were way ahead of Kodak. And now look, I mean, Kodak is, I mean, you'll have little drips and drops of Kodak here and there, but not the powerhouse that it used to be. Kodak had no problem with innovation. Kodak had no problem with branding. They were the best. But because they were led by fear, they were playing defense. And their strategic questions in the boardroom was how not to lose, not how to win. So are you playing on defense? Are you asking yourself how not to lose questions? How do I not lose this market share instead of what's really out there? What's the new opportunity that's knocking on the door? You see a lot of uh, offline businesses getting eaten up by online businesses. And um, still many of them have tried to go online or not really trying to go online because they're protecting their traditional market with whatever justification, only to find that over the years, the market share gets eaten up more and more. Now that could be a, a situation where that particular business needs to completely reinvent itself, needs to completely go into a new business model, but many of them are still playing on defense. How do I not lose my offline market if I go online? Instead of saying, what's the bigger opportunity? you know, Or what's the bigger dream for me as a business owner um, and a business leader? Okay, so are you playing on defense is the first question. Second, can you see the opportunity behind the problem? People who are led by fear, businesses who are led by fear, teams that are led by fear often can only wallow around the problem. I mean, I remember another client of mine, he was in the uh, gadget business and he had an exclusive distributorship with a company, a principal in Taiwan. Did very well in the market for a couple of years, um, basically dominated in lots of major cities. And uh, then the principal got greedy. He said, you know, we're going to take off the exclusivity agreement. We're going to open up to other distributors so we can expand in Indonesia a lot faster. Of course, that broke his heart because he was a man of integrity and he didn't like being cheated like that. He felt that the, the exclusivity agreement was a long-term contract and they, they changed it midway. And he was just wallowing in that problem. He was just saying, oh, this is the end of my business. I don't have any other things. And then uh, my question to him was, well, what business are you in? 
And then he said, the gadget business, this particular gadget, he was selling cameras, digital cameras. And then I said, well, is that your product or is that your business? What business are you in? I kept asking that question and he couldn't find the answer. So I just told him, I said, you're a distributor of an electronic product. You are in a relationship business. Any, if you're a distributor, if any of you on this call is a distributor, you are not um, in that, the business of that product. You're not a gadget business. You are a relationship business. You're, the, you're in the business of trust. So I said, you can sell anything. You know, your clients love you. I've been coaching them for three years at the time. Your clients love you and you've got that kind of reputation where you can sell anything to them. You can sell sand to the Arabs, I said, <laughs> you know, because they trust you and they love you. And that he did. He changed from just digital camera to, at that time, it was speakers, you know, those uh, USB speakers I just came on. And then a few other gadget things. I can't remember a little, little uh, electronic uh, communicators, etc. So he went into that. Of course, with any gadget business, as you know, if you're in the business, it, it's, it's a trend and then margins start slipping. It's a trend and margins start slipping. And in, in essence, if I look at his journey, um, it was actually a good thing that he lost the exclusivity. It was a good thing that he spread his wings beyond just that little digital camera gadget that he was distributing because that particular product was just declining in profits. That's the nature of the gadget world. You you talk to anyone in gadgets, uh, profits are declining every month, you know, with competition and deals and contracts, things like that. Eventually he found and is still in right now, the LED lights business. Now that's an interesting one because he, he sold them, he installed them, he maintained uh, the, the property for them. And that has become a very lucrative business, much more lucrative than selling digital cameras at decline in profits every month. So it was actually a good opportunity that he got kicked out <laughs> of the digital camera market because he found something even better. And so when you are trapped in fear, all you can see is this problem. But you, when you're away from fear, and maybe this is why it's also important for you to work with somebody who can see the blind spot, who can see things in a different light than you. For me, it's an opportunity because I look at his, I look at his business performance, and it is because the industry was, in a way, it's good that it was increasing. But at the same time, it is not an industry that can sustain profitability for such a long time. But when you and, and I'm not saying LED lights won't decline in profits, but for now, LED lights is really the, the place to grow, right? Because that's just everybody wants to be more sustainable, etc. So again, are you being driven by fear? The second question you might want to see is, is all I see problem? Problem, problem, problem. Is that all I see? If it is, you could be driven by fear because you're afraid. Can I see the other side of the coin? Can I see the opportunity behind this problem? And maybe you need somebody to help you see that. Okay, so dwell on that. Number three, are you justifying something that no longer works? Um, another client of mine, great business, but the problem is money wasn't a problem, but the problem was he couldn't get any time to have a proper vacation with his growing kids. He had sent his kids to university in America, so quite a long, long flight. And if you're going to fly 20 hours to see your kids, you're going to spend at least two, three weeks with them. But he can't, so he never did. 
His wife kept on going and visiting the kids and taking little vacations. He just kept running the business because he couldn't trust his team. He couldn't he couldn't get around his head how to get the team to work in a you know in an engaged way without him. Again, great leader, nice guy, but he was justifying his kindness. He was too nice. You know, have you ever seen those leaders that don't have KPIs, don't have good standards, have pizza parties on a random basis? not really clear on the bonus system, not really clear on any reports that he demands of the team. So the team loves him for the wrong reason. But he was afraid that if he became a little bit tougher on the team or he became a little bit, even if he increased his standards, um, first he didn't know how, but if he did, he was afraid that he was going to be this demanding mean boss. So he kept justifying that, you know, people in the world should be more nicer to each other. So it became like this global philosophy of kindness, which in fact didn't really work in his team anyway. So he, we built up this dream of, you know, spending more time retiring and he was already 55 at the time, uh, spending more time with his family. And that meant because his kids were so far away, that meant at least being able to go away for three weeks. And we put in place systems uh, because of the new dream, he was he was willing to get out of the comfort zone and willing to make some changes in his leadership style. And thankfully, he enjoyed it. He enjoyed seeing his team be more disciplined. And he also enjoyed the successes that they won together as a team because of that discipline. They got you know, better client retention, they got better cash flow, better profitability. And then he celebrated them, celebrated them with them properly. So the pizza parties and the free lunches and everything like that had a meaning. It wasn't just boss being nice. It was just because we increased our cash flow by 20%. Then we're having this wonderful celebration. And next month, we're going to have this target. I'm going to have another, you know, probably a, a better pizza or something like that, uh, a, a bigger celebration. So he enjoyed that. And he became and he, he's a lovely man. He, he credits everything to his team and he, he makes them feel so good about their, 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 their progress. And over time, I remember after a year of coaching, he texted me from America. He said, coach, I'm, I've been, uh, you know, he was traveling around Vegas. Uh, you know, he says, I can't believe it. He's, he's been out for two weeks and the company's running well without him. And he reported that after a year, his, his revenues doubled because now he wasn't really working by himself. He was the team that he paid, the team that he hired, the team that he works for him is actually helping him grow the business. So he no longer feels the need to justify. But if you find yourself justifying patterns that you know logically doesn't work anymore or people have tried to tell you look this isn't working and somehow you keep justifying it and justifying it you may be trapped in fear of change so again reflective question right take some time out after this webinar to kind of think about this are you being driven by fear again are you in the fear zone is it time for you to look into what is the brave zone or have somebody help you look into that and if you are ready to move into the brave zone, there is a three-step transformation process. The first I call brave awareness um, and then brave discovery and brave action. Brave awareness is waking up to your fears. It's that going from that denial justification phase like my client did to saying, right, 
yeah, uh, I can see it. I'm not putting enough disciplines and demands on my team. And I'm just being nice for absolutely no reason. I'm being nice. I am in, I am afraid of losing um, the, the love from my team. And that's when you wake up. Now, many times I don't see that because a lot of people who are already uh, contacting me for coaching or self-development programs, they've already gone through that brave awareness themselves. Like another client of mine lost his business because of some government regulation and some nasty tricks from the competition. He lost his business. It was quite brutal how they closed his business down. Um, And he came to my office, he asked for time, and he knew that he was in fear. He says, look, I can't sleep. I, I have no confidence to go forward and be build another business. Um, and he's already woken up to the fact that he is afraid. So it's not something that I see or um, many times I do help people be aware. But many times also when you're already contacting me, you've already got, you've got that awareness already, which is fantastic. So then I go to the next step, dig, 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 which is digging to the root cause. Where is that coming from? Um, and that's what process called brave discovery. For instance, for uh, that client of mine whose business closed down, the root cause of his fear was really because he was in an industry which was very different, which operated with a different value, let's just say. Again, it was also a blessing in disguise that he got kicked out of that industry albeit in a nasty way. But even if he kept on going, the money was great, but he was just, it was an industry that went against his values, his values of integrity, his values of kindness, his value of uh, doing business for good reasons. Um, It wasn't the right service for him to be in. And that's what made him uncomfortable. And uh, the, the kicking out process was of course very, difficult, but, um, you know, he found his new businesses in the end and now he's financially free. So digging to the root cause, working on the solutions that matter for him to build up his confidence was, he was a family man. And, and obviously when you have a collapse in business like that, it does hit your income. And he had three small kids and he was afraid that if he went to another business, his wife wouldn't support him. His wife was his rock. Um, But when we worked on, before we worked on, you know, fancy strategic solutions, the solutions that he remembered and he really impacted him was having a meeting with me, him and his wife. And I facilitated a couple's alignment for them because it was, they needed time and space to talk about what happened, the fears that it caused in them and how they how they felt about each other after the, the, the process and how how much faith they had in their future. Thankfully, they're they're such a great team. I'm I'm so pleased that they're together, but they we they solved their own fears. They they supported each other to take new risks. And but there were some ground rules that, that they also agreed on so it doesn't go crazy like it did before. Um, and they, they reinstated their family values and they, they, they aligned so much better. And he was just so relieved he was able to have that conversation with his wife and how his wife supported him. And now they're, they've, they've grown to be such a wonderful family. And he never forgot that moment. He said that was the, the keystone moment for him uh, when, when, when he needed that 
And that was his biggest discovery. He needed his family to be behind him uh, going through the process, the new process. So again, a lot of business people I know and I work with, they're actually very, very smart, a lot smarter than I am, just like you are in this call. Um, but it's sometimes these little things that keep you limit, limited and uh, this key turnarounds that you need psychologically, mentally, you know, uh, to, to break through whatever you're going through. And it's very important to spray discoveries to dig to the root cause. And we work on the solutions that matter. Arguably, you can find loads of solutions from books, from blogs, from getting advice from other people on what you should do. And um, you can talk to 10 friends and get 10 different solutions. But which ones really matter? Which ones really hit that root cause? So that's brave discovery. And brave action is really taking prepared action despite a fear. He ended up going into property investing in the UK. That time, that was really, really a good market to get into. Uh, but he didn't understand anything about investing profit in, property in the UK. So part of his brave action is not just being fearless and going there and buying this and that, but it's to take a one-year course with a property expert in the UK, getting coached by a property expert in the UK, and to be more prepared to invest in the UK. And his properties obviously did very well at that time. Um, and then he invested in other properties around the world. So brave action is not fearless action. It is taking prepared action despite of the fear. Okay, so those that's the three-step process. Now let's understand what makes people change. Okay, what makes people change is, you know, as we know, it's not comfortable, but people change sometimes to avoid pain. Uh, when my father had his first heart attack in 1988, well, my late father, he's, he's no longer alive, but when he had that that first heart attack in 1988, he was only about 48 years old. And I guess at that time he, he had the dream of, you know, seeing us all grow up, get married, have kids, grandkids and everything. And of course, being in a hospital two weeks in the ICU in the intensive care unit is quite painful. When he got out of the hospital, he was enough, strong enough to go back to his activities. He went from a couch potato who didn't eat very healthily and he ate too much salt and everything like that. He went from that to a very active um, uh, walker every single morning, 6 a.m. Him and my mom, they're walking around um, this, uh, our residential area, which had a few hills and everything like that. And they just, they just walked and they were, they were very active. They got fit and everything like that. I think the drastic change in their lifestyle came from the need to avoid pain, uh, the pain of being in a hospital, the physical pain of being ill, and also the financial pain of paying for the hospital because we didn't have insurance at the time. Um, then, so that's the voiding of pain. So the question sometimes is that in order for people to inspire people to change, the question you can use is what can you stand to lose if you don't change? Now ask people that, and maybe they can come up with their own answer of, yeah, well, life would suck. So, okay, so change may not be that, that difficult. And of course, pain is one thing, but also gaining pleasure was another. As I said, he might've dreamed of seeing his kids get married, his uh, having grandchildren and everything. So what can you stand to gain if you do change, if you do have a daily exercise habit? And if you do stay away from heart problems, maybe for my dad, he was thinking about the future of his family. 
So that could be another question to to help support change is, you know, not just avoid pain, but what kind of pleasure would you like to gain if you change? Maybe it's some kind of pride of uh, a new rec- a new recognition or a new achievement, or maybe it's personal growth by, you know, like for me, learning how to dive and overcoming different fears that I had in my life was uh, what I had to stand to gain was freedom the, and, and the knowledge and confidence that I can really uh, go through anything in life you know, uh, confidently. So that was the pleasure. So it's not always a physical monetary incentive. It's sometimes just this feeling of confidence, the feeling that I can trudge through it all. Okay, so you've got pain, you've got pleasure. Then we talk about first steps. What, what are the first steps to change? Now, let's say, we go back to my father. He was in a hospital for two weeks. Now he's uh, you know, fit enough to do daily activities. And the doctor says, you know, if you really want to change to a better lifestyle, every day you need to walk up and down 10 hills at 4.30 in the morning every single day. And I want you to eat only green vegetables, no meat, no salt, nothing. Mm, I'd say maybe if he could last a week on that one, that would be really good. But if the first steps to change is so darn difficult, it's so huge, many people will resist change. Not because they don't understand the pain and the pleasure, but they, they resist that big elephant first step. Now, some of us... Uh, Perhaps when we're leading our team, we say, yeah, guys, let's change. You know, everybody, let's change. We're going we're gonna to grow together. And here's the first step. One, two, three, four, five, six, 20. And it makes people go, whoa, that's really hard. Okay, now I'm just going to stay in my comfort zone. So how do we chunk first steps into smaller bite-sized pieces? Or some of us might say, yeah, yeah, we're going to change. We're going to grow the business and we're going to be fantastic together. What's the first steps? Mm, not sure. Or I think, or let's do this. Oh, no, let's do that. Or, or let's change. And it's not clear, you see. And you can imagine that even though people understand the pain and pleasure associated with the change, they're not willing to be, you know, the guinea pig. And, or, or they're not willing to follow an unclear leader who doesn't even know what you're doing. Okay, so first steps. Must be clear, must be achievable, must be bite-sized. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Okay, so that's the the logic of it. Then let's talk about the final thing, which is internal resistance. You know the pain, you know the pleasure, the first step is clear and it's quite simple, doable. But then there's something, there's something in you that says, nah, I don't want to change. Where's that coming from? Let's understand a little bit about the identity iceberg. This is a tool that I use often. You know, whether or not my clients know that I'm using it, whether it's some a sheet that we print out together or sometimes it's just something that I use in my conversation. Identity iceberg, let me explain that most of the results in our lives, the decisions that we make, the actions that we take, the behaviors that we display, that's all above the water. And when we look at the iceberg above the water, it's a relatively small ice piece of ice compared to the big bulk that's floating under the water. So everything above surface we can see, but everything above surface is actually supported by what's under the surface. Your behaviors, you can only behave a certain way. You can only behave, do things that you have skills for. 
So let's say you're asking people to change, but they don't have the new skill required to make that change. You need to train them. You need to impart new skills. You can't just expect them to change, right? So that's pretty obvious. That's why people do training and stuff like that. But what if it's not skill? Uh, what if it's beliefs? It's something they hold to be true. For instance, you want people, um, I've, got, I've got an executive that I coached for a year. He's an expat. He's one of the most successful expatriates in his, um, in his corporation. He's been expatted once before. So this is second posting. Young guy, only 37 years old. But uh, he had trouble balancing his work and life. He would come home really, really late at night, not spend any time with his young family. And basically at the beginning of our coaching, he said, look, I really need to balance my life. If not, my family's going to, you know, um, I'm going to lose my family. So we looked at his behaviors, coming home late at night, not being balanced, not delegating the essential things that you need to delegate to your team. But that's coming not um, that's coming from what's really underneath the, the surface, his skills, his skills. He was a great sales director, but his skills was really client facing skills. He hadn't yet developed much internal leadership skills because he was always doing the work for his team because he didn't trust his team. The skills of delegation, he didn't really master. Not that he never read the book. He probably read a thousand books, but he never mastered. He never practiced it. So, but rather he was a studious guy. He could pick up skills very, very easily. He's already started going into courses and training, but it hadn't really changed him. So it's not really on this basis of skills. So let's go deeper. His beliefs. What do you believe when you delegate work to your team? Oh, I believe they'll mess it up. I believe they're not ready for complicated work. I believe I'm the only person that can do this and la, 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 la. So I can see, ah, right, that's this on the stage of beliefs, um, he's having a problem. Now, is that, a tr is that truth? Is it possible that his team really doesn't know how to do it? Could be, absolutely. He may not be wrong on that. I trust you know your team. But again, he didn't have the skills to teach a team, to groom a team. He had the skills to overtake their work. You see what I mean? And that that firmed up that that oh that firmed up his belief even further that yeah, his team is totally incompetent, you know. So, but let's go deeper because maybe it's not just at the uh, the skills and beliefs level. So we went down to values. So what's important to you at work? Perfectionism. Hmm. When you work, what's really important? Perfectionism. Everything's gotta be right. Um I, I got to make sure service excellence to the customer, blah, 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 which is fantastic. It's a fantastic value. But is it the right value for him at that senior level of management? Customer service is a fantastic value. But that should be the value for his team to have. For him, perhaps at his level of the organization, which is already quite high, he should maybe have a value of people development um, that I need to create excellence in my team. Then they will go forth and serve the, the clients. So his values was very, uh, I would say frontline because he used to be a salesperson. Now he's a sales director, but he didn't realize that in his role, he's already quite senior. He should have people doing all the frontline values. So his values of perfectionism, 
not a bad value. It's just not achievable. I don't know anybody who's perfect. So it's kind of a, a myth, you know. So we switch that to excellence, that or never-ending improvement. That that's that's an interesting, a more a more doable value than perfectionism. Perfectionism just stresses you out, stresses everybody out around you. But I said, well, maybe that's not where it stops. Maybe it's also his identity. So let's dig a little further. So we dug a little further and we looked at his identity and said, well, who do you think you are at work? And we, you know, we've got comfortable with each other by that point. And he just, you know, he blurted out, well, I'm a savior. <laughs> you know, he said, okay. So I was, I was thinking, okay, maybe he has a crown of thorns and two nail holes in his left and right palm that I don't see. I don't see it. So uh, I said, how are you a savior? <laughs> You know, I thought I was talking to Jesus or something. Um, but he really saw himself as that guy that was so talented that he needed to save everybody. And to me, that was quite core. This is why he had the value of perfectionism. He had the value of a very frontline value of customer service. This is why he believed his team could not do it. And this is why he never really sharpened his leadership skills. He just kept sharpening his doer skills. And uh, that was a pretty critical moment when we discovered that the savior identity was probably no longer useful. And it's definitely not the identity that you would want to have if you want to come home on time. And he then chose the value, uh, the identity of a people developer, which switched everything from values, beliefs, skills, it switched everything up there. Because as a people developer, your value is no longer perfectionism. It's excellence. It's never ending improvement. Beliefs cannot be, my people can't do it. I mean, you're a people developer. It's a belief of my people can do it if I know how to groom them. Or the belief is not the, the best uh, use of my time at that time was going seeing, go see the clients and go do their work for them. The best use of my time as a people developer is to teach my team, to hire the right teams, to place them in the right positions, which we found later if we talked about the business side of things. The reason his people were incompetent was some of them were not being put in the right positions and they, were, they weren't given the right skills and tools and chance to prove themselves. So because he had the value of a people developer, now he's paying attention to all that. And his environment changed. He started going into a lot of self-development courses, writing self-development books. Now he writes leadership blogs on, uh, on, 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 his, on his profile, which is fantastic. And he's moved on so, um, so quickly and advanced through the organization as well. He was promoted uh, to an Asia-Pacific role. And now he is serving in a different company, but he's getting a lot more senior roles and opportunities and making a greater impact. And from the family front, he's you know happy. He can take his kids to school. And a year after our coaching was over, his wife was expecting another child. So I think things are good. So again, this identity iceberg, the change that you seek is sometimes above the surface. But you have to understand in order to change the stuff in the surface, there's a lot of internal things, that internal resistance that come from the things below the surface. This is where you need to address it. And this is why when you've got executives that have been trying to change and they've gone to courses, they've gone to training, they've gone to this, they've gone to that, but they haven't sustained that change, I would say look at the what's below the waterline. 
not what's above. And let's see if that something changes. I particularly like to see people's identity and how they perceive themselves. And I know you've got to dig a few layers to get there. But if you get used to doing that, like I'm used to, to seeing that um, it, it comes quite quickly when you're used to seeing how people uh, talk about themselves and the words that people use to describe their existing situation, all the stuff like beliefs, values, and identity really come, come forth quite quickly. So let's end with uh, five patterns that keep you in the fear zone. And, and hopefully uh, throughout all this, you've, you've had enough interesting insights for you to take home and, and, and implement. Here's the first pattern. I must know what will happen in the future before I take action. These are the patterns that keep people from changing, from moving forward. Um, now, this is an interesting one because obviously, uh, logically, we know that there's, you know, fortune telling is not always a gift that everybody has, but maybe this person is trying to be a fortune teller because I must know what will happen in the future before I take action is usually an excuse you give yourself for saying that I'm afraid of change. Now, overvaluing certainty, this is what I call this pattern. You may miss out on growth, obviously. Now, how do we overcome this, though? Usually, this type of person also needs help to clarify their desired results. What is the outcome? Because if you just focus on the challenges, there's any, any new adventure you go into will have challenges. But... If we focus on the goal, many of us will be willing to step out of our comfort zone to get the goal, even though it means experiencing a lot of change. It's like having kids, you know. If you think about the way to have kids, you got to get pregnant for nine months, and then when you have them, they run around or, or they, they poo all over the place. It's really, it turns you off, you know, it's like, oh my goodness. But if you're saying, well, what's my desired result? A happy family, Christmas with the family. And then you have, you have visions of you being, you know, that parent and that kid growing up to be somebody. Suddenly, you know, that whole nine months process, the years and years of paying for their education, the, the pooing all over the carpet and, and uh, the, the tantrums in the supermarket, you, you feel like I, I can overcome all that. But you don't focus on the process, you focus on the result. And sometimes when people are overly valuing certainty, I must know what's going to happen, I must understand this, I must understand that, they're focusing, they're trapping themselves by focusing too much on I need to know what the process is before I take any action. So get them to get clear on their desired results and you might see that they shift. Exaggeration is another pattern that people have. Sometimes it's in a behavior pattern. There are certain cultures who speak with hyperboles. They, they speak with lots of exaggerated words. Or sometimes it's just a false belief. I mean, whatever it is, help your people to catch it and 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 question that, is it, is it really like millions of problems that we're gonna focus on? Um, or is it really going to oh, be catastrophic? You know, whatever the exaggerated words that people use, question that, you know? So that's one way to, to overcome it. Uh, some people have this challenge, I can't be bothered to get out of my comfort zone. Hmm, this is where I give a note to HR. And some people, you've tried this, you've tried that, but at the end of it, they just, I can't be bothered. I'd just rather be the way I am. Now, sometimes that's a behavioral trait that you can catch through a psychometric assessment if you did it in the recruitment phase. If not, then you've probably missed something at recruitment. Are you sure you've got the right person on board? 
um, assess their ambition, assess their personal goals, assess the clarity of their self-awareness, or assess their leaders. Are they being taught to be an, on status quo? Is this a culture of the division? Maybe the leaders got the same culture. So, but for me, this is, I'm not sure if this can be taught. You know, I'm not sure, you know, again, if they if they've got a better clarity of their personal goals, then fine. But if they if you've tried all that and they says, oh, I just can't be bothered, I don't have I don't have the same vision as you. I, I just want to be the way I am, then think about not having them on the team. I mean, it's really that simple. I can't change is another um uh, belief that people have and for me it's interesting it's a for me it's a linguistic type of coaching I think what you mean is you will not change you choose not to change don't say the word can't because for many of us we are not physically disabled we are not mentally disabled we it's not a matter of personal capacity I cannot means you physically or mentally cannot do something when you say I choose not to change it's actually a much more empowering statement that for for the client as well for them to realize that you know change is my choice and for this I've decided not to change and for me as a coach you know if someone has decided not to do, consciously decided they do not want to do something, I think there's very little that we can do to, to snap them out of it. But if they hide behind the word can't, what I do is I make sure they choose better words so that they don't feel disempowered. Can't leaves you feeling disempowered. Deciding not to change, that's your choice. You suffer the consequences or you live with the consequences of not changing but at least you're aware that it's a, de a decision. It's not a physical disability. So that's something that I think it's more of a linguistic thing that you can catch people on as well. The lack of faith, you know, uh, the, some people don't want to change because perhaps they've experienced something bad or they've seen something bad or, they've, or they haven't experienced anything bad and what is laying there in the future seems so bad. And I would say that um, I like this little quote that I heard somewhere is at the end of the day, everything will be all right. And if it's not all right, it's not the end of the day. Why I like that quote is because, as I said, in my own personal journey of leading businesses and in life and personal as well as professional challenges, um, I've seen a lot. <laughs> I've seen I've led businesses through. Uh, political riots when uh, the riots of 1998 happened in Jakarta and in Indonesia. Uh, president stepped down, riots burning, uh, killings in the streets. Um, there was also a Pan-Asia epidemic, SARS, in 2001. We had to sustain our business. We had to grow it. Currency, you know, how our currency dropped by, gosh, how many hundreds of percent. Um, against the US dollar and all our goods were imported. <laughs> that was fun. You know, increasing prices by 400%, 600%, not losing a single customer. That was pretty fun. Uh, we couldn't, we couldn't believe what we were doing. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, after all that, you know, we also see much worse, you know, uh, countries at war, you know, uh, terrorism attacks. But at the end of that, somehow, the world heals itself. People learn the lesson and we progress into a better society um, in, in certain aspects. So that has created in me this 
faith. And I'm not saying faith as in religion. I'm just saying faith as in confidence that, you know, things will somehow come out in the end. Things will go back to whatever normal is. It's not the end of the day. And for the most part, the changes that you're experiencing or you have to experience in business right now, it's not catastrophic. It's not dramatic. You know, it's, it's not like the hardest thing anyone's ever done. So I encourage you to have a little faith. And I think in as much that business can be seen as a very logical sport, it is also a mental sport. And I think the ability to be optimistic and to have that faith and walk in faith is very important for business people. You'll see that people who are successful, they have that calm about them. You know, they're not panicked. They have that calm about them and say, look, you know, let's go through this anyway. And, and somehow, even though we don't know the answer yet, and that's why the ability to take uncertainty is also very, very good for successful business people, is that somehow it'll turn out well in the end. So that's, that's, um, that's something that I think that a pattern that needs to be caught. Sometimes people are afraid because they just simply lack optimism, lack faith. Um, okay, so that's, that's where we're at. At the end of the day, you are the mastermind. Um, we've talked about fear. We've talked about emotions. I just want to say that you are not your emotions. You're not your feelings. You're not your actions. You're not your thoughts. Many of us have lied in our lives, but we are not liars. Lying is, a, is an, an action, but it doesn't make us who we are. Many of us have been angry in the past. We felt the emotion of anger, but it doesn't mean that we are angry people. Um, many of us have thought of negative thoughts, but it doesn't mean that we are a negative person. So you are not your thoughts. You're not your action. You're not your feelings. But who are you? Over time, as I work with, as we work together to just kind of sharpen your self-awareness, I want you to see yourself as this person playing a chess game. You've got the whole board full of little pieces, chess pieces that you can move around. One can be a certain thought. One can be a certain emotion. You are the master. You need to have the self-awareness and detachment for you to pick up the piece, the useful piece, and use it in your game. You need to pick the action, the emotion, the thought that will serve you at that moment. And when you are able to do that, you are the mastermind. So where that comes with self-awareness and clarity. Clarity of who you are, what's your voice, what's your style, what's your goals? What are you facing right now? Where is that coming from? Self-awareness to kind of understand yourself, how to feel yourself from within. That's what I love to work with people on. And when, because I've seen it myself, I mean, I've gotten coaching as well, many, many, uh, much coaching over years. And to me, I think the greatest gift of going through that personal development process for me was to help me sharpen my personal awareness and my clarity about who I am. Therefore, I can be a master of myself instead of being a servant to my emotions and my fears. So this is what I want to invite you on this journey to move from the fear zone to the brave zone. Hey, maybe this fish is saying, you know how I jumped? Because I got clarity. And this is what I want you to experience. So your adventure awaits. 
how do you enhance your awareness? How do you begin that hero's journey for yourself? We've talked a lot about fears, but maybe it's not just the fear that limits you. Maybe it's something else. I'd like to offer you to book an initial discovery session by emailing me at the Brain Zone. And let's have a chat. It will be um, complimentary and it will be just a short chat, maybe 20, 20, 30 minutes for you need to understand you a little bit to understand your journey. And if we feel the need to speak further or create a program together or work together in, uh, in an extended period of time, we'll decide that afterwards. But for now, if you are interested to kind of understand a little bit about yourself and gain a little bit of self-awareness to help you through some things, email me. Let's talk. Let's start the conversation. It's been a pleasure for me to serve you in this webinar. Look out for more information on the webinars. Um, and you will be sent a recording, obviously. And I wish you the best in your business, in your life. Those two are very much combined. And uh, I hope this webinar is something that you will listen to again, take some notes on, answer all the questions, share with the people around you so that you will all grow together. I'll see you in the next session. Bye for now.